You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome. Okay. My name is Linda Schwartz, and I'm a retired branch manager from the Pratt Library. Um, and I want to tell you why it's exceedingly appropriate that Brendan Walsh and Willa Bickham should be speaking tonight under the auspices of the Pratt Library. Um, Baltimore, just like every major city, has its challenges and always has had its challenges. And For every challenge, there's a champion. And we are here tonight because Enoch Pratt was one of those champions. And so tonight, we're going to hear from two current champions. And I'm hoping that Brendan and Willa are going to talk to you about Viva House, about being a Catholic worker, about resistance in Baltimore, And if, by some chance, they should mention food bags, you need to see me after the program. (laughs) So may I present Brendan Walsh and Willa Beckham. Thank you very much, Linda. Can I walk with this or, no, can't walk? That's okay. They're podcasting. So. This one? Oh, okay. Yes, just need two hands. You can tell I do a lot of public speaking. Um, and tell how much I love it. This is a painting that's um, uh, representative of what we do at Viva House for those who don't know what we do. However, there's people here who spend hours and hours with us each week working, so this is rather redundant for them. But um, We have uh, a soup kitchen and a food pantry. Here's a woman carrying out food. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we uh, distributed about oh, 140, for instance, the numbers here, but I'll say 140 bags of groceries and about 125 blankets from Martin Luther King King's birthday. Um, people stop by for help with gas and electric, that kind of thing. In the past, we've done many other things. You're seeing us in our, in our decline. We're, 40, we're 49 years now. Um, we have um, a lot of surveillance in the neighborhood, the blue light cameras. We have um, often arrests in the middle of a the soup kitchen or on the uh, stoop of the soup kitchen. So what I wanted to say about Mound Street is that, and down here, oh, over here is Enthusiasm. That's the name of our uh, newsletter. So um, there's many kinds of art. I do some, some art, but there's, um, most of my art right now is watercolor, but some silk screened. Um, we've done, and uh, we've seen the uh, young folks uh, with their beautiful uh, t-shirts and leaflets and banners, which is a great form of art. Um, murals, installation art, performance art, music, poetry, um, photography, theater. These are all forms of art that are so important for resistance, especially in this day and age. This is how we have to speak up. Um, we have at... Uh, Mount Street uh, at Viva House, we have a Stone of Hope, and that's where we um, commemorate Martin Luther King every year. Out of the Stone of Hope, we'll hew, Mount of Despair, we will hew a Stone of Hope. And um, that's in the front of the house, and next to it is a big sign we call the Alley of Tears. A friend of ours, Scooby, was murdered by a few steps from our house in that alley. And um, two years ago, Oscar Torres, a 15-year-old neighbor, was murdered there. Um, it's, it's an open-air drug market. 
uh, neighborhood, so we have our uh, our share of uh, violence, and uh, we have our share of wonderful neighbors too. So that's um, Mount Street and some of the art that uh, that we do there. The other is Wound is Hurting, which is a silk screen. I mean, obviously this is a print of it that I did in 1974. Um, and Don't Tell Her How to Holler was certainly a part of, came from the women's movement of the 70s. And we saw on Saturday, it's repeated again with the uh, grandchildren and young folks. Um, the idea of the, the silkscreen and the words is that often art can tell you about suffering. And it's often meant for the uh, people in the streets, my art at least is meant for the people in the streets. It's not just museums and galleries that have some of the uh, art. Um, one of the uh, women that inspired this silkscreen uh, uh, was named, we used to have in the 80s, women and children lived with us, uh, homeless women and children. Um, and one of them that we loved dearly was uh, Jean. Jean was one of the most cultured and intelligent women that I've ever met in my life. Uh, she was one of the first women admitted to the Johns Hopkins Night School. She loved the arts. She loved a good conversation. She loved to argue. She argued with the best of them. Um, she uh, loved helping Brendan do research for his uh, master's thesis on homeless women in Baltimore. And then, um, and oftentimes when she was helping them do the statistics and all, she'd be sleeping outside. That was her choice. I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, but anyway, she'd be outside um, downtown sleeping out so often. She didn't want to stay thought She wanted to be out. That was part of her illness. And she went with Brendan to testify before the Senate Committee on uh, Homelessness. Senator Gonzalez held hearings um, in the US Congress. Um, she often had a little poem or a little gift from the streets for our daughter who would be, you know, like five or six about at that time. Um, Jean experienced what was wrong with our system against the backdrop of caring people who went against the overwhelming tide in their quest for justice and peace. We, uh, we will never forget Jean. All right, now, women weaving. Here's women weaving. Kate Walsh Little, our daughter, helped me do this. And um, it's from the uh, underground, women underground. All women of every land will weave a world web to entangle the powers that bury our children. Um, Saturday's march showed us the power of women to entangle the powers that bury our children. So I wanted to read to you, there's a one of the nicest critiques of my art, besides all my friends give it the best, was the, <laughs> was the um, introduction forward to our book, written by David Simon, who did The Wire and The Corner and all this. Um, and he uh, wrote in here, it has become fashionable over the last three and a half decades to mock and belittle the naivete of those among us who commit their lives to deep and abiding human service, or who would dare to make any argument against the notion that capitalist markets are the fixed and inevitable arbiters of what has value and merit in this world. We live in a world in which capital has won all the battles, and the presumption is that every solution to every problem must now and henceforth get the money right first. Those that measure life in other terms are increasingly a source of pity, if not comedy, to those riding atop this great moneyed wave. And this, this was written before the election, so it's, it's, uh, it struck me when he wrote about the, the different, that was what he read about some of the, what he wrote about some of the poetry. The other one is concurrence, which is from my, uh, Favorite poet. I have to say that nobody loves this as much as I do, but I love this painting. 
I think, I think this is my favorite. Um, Denise Levertov has passed away, but she has written some of the most beautiful poetry you ever get a chance to read. So the, um, the poem that she wrote up here is called Concurrence, um, which would be, uh, definition would be like a combination of circumstances, two things come together. Um, the poem reads, each day's terror, almost a form of boredom, madmen at the wheel and stepping on the gas, and the brakes no good, and each day one, sometimes two, morning glories, faultless, blue, blue, sometimes flecked with magenta, each lit from within with the first sunlight. So this poem takes on even new relevance as we see each day on the evening news, the madmen at the wheel, but each day we can see as the time passes, as spring approaches, one or two maybe morning glories. So for me, this is a poem of great hope. It understands the, the justice and the, the injustice and the suffering around the world, but yet it understands the hope. And that was uh, one of the things that we've talked with the um, daughter and granddaughter about Saturday's March. It was a real vision of the future. Um, as I said to Jen, some of the language and the posters, um, the kids, grandkids have to define some things for me. I'm not sure about some of this <laughs> pussy power and all this kind of stuff, or why we all have to wear pink now when we work so hard to not wear pink. <laughs> so um, this is a, they, they've showed us, I think the young folks are, they have to step forward because we're kind of stepping back a bit. And um, they, uh, they do show us a vision of the future. And what I love best is the young ones link all the issues. You know, I use, we're all used to go because we're against the death penalty. Then the next day we go to another one because we're against Vietnam, and another one about housing. But they put them all, all the chance for all together. They all, Black Lives Matter, keep your hands off my body, and all this was all, they, they, they have a very, very good approach to this. So for me, the morning glory here is the uh, symbol of hope, and that's what's so important uh, in these times to keep alive. <laughs> You're on. This is some of the artwork that we did. Um, each Christmas we send out something, so you're welcome just to take anything you want. This is this year's. It's got to be the joy. And Cornel West, and anyway, I just bought a few copies, but there's more at the house if anybody wants it. Would you like to? No, you can put it there. Put it there, okay. <clears throat> well, Brendan sets up, I'll tell you. This, this painting they also did for Jean, who I mentioned. Uh, Jean often slept in the bank, in the doorway of her bank. Jean had money. He was obviously mentally ill. And she had money, but she was too sick to be able to use it. But she would like to stay in the bank to the bank door and just buy her money. All right. Maybe I could just say just a, a couple of words just about the book. If anybody's thinking of doing a book, Think about it. Uh, <laughs> I told Willa we could only do the book if there's artwork in it. If it's not any artwork, it's not going to fly. Nobody's going to read this stuff. Uh, the artwork's going to take their eye off the words and maybe even make sense of the words. So it was great that Willa agreed. However, I don't know how to really use a computer. And I didn't know... Uh, what, what do they call it again? The stick is, the, um, flash the flash drive is. And we learned that we had to submit the book uh, by email. You submit the whole book by email, you put all of the art on this flash drive, and you email that. 
And we were working with Loyola, and it's a student-based uh, endeavor. Apprentice Press, well, really, the students didn't do that much work. And if we didn't have a friend called Linda Schopes, people might know her. She was one of the chief editors of the book called The Baltimore Book. And if you ever need something edited and you're willing to be humbled, ask, ask Linda to help you because she'll say, identify everything. You can't just say that. So we were greatly indebted to our three granddaughters who know how to use a computer. And they also know how to type. And they also know how to change paragraphs anytime you want. Uh, I'm coming from the old school. Back in the early 60s, and you submitted a term paper, footnotes on the bottom, and if you made a mistake, you might have to type the whole page over or you get erasable bond paper. I mean, it was pretty much very, very different. Uh, not like it is now. So I am so indebted uh, to these people, and he's not here tonight, uh, but if I did not have uh, Rick Connors help me for a full year, put the damn thing together, uh, and organize it into chapters, you should have seen what I, what I gave him. And he said, that's very nice, uh, <laughs> but we have to do something. So when, when you get the book, I think it'll make a lot of sense when you put the art and everything together. Uh, and one of the, the great parts about the uh, book, we had to give a talk. There was a big Catholic worker gathering out in Las Vegas uh, in October. And so we said, well, we need to get some books out to Las Vegas. They said, fine, we'll have them printed in California. And I said, well, wait a minute, how, do you, how can you do that when the other books are being printed in Pennsylvania? And they said, well, it's done on the computer. So I said, well, how do you know the colors will be the same? And I said, well, it's on the computer. So, you know, I, I don't worship technology. I don't worship the computer. And so I, I just had to take it on blind faith. But, so that, that's another thing. So if you're thinking about a book, this one took 14 months to finally get done. Um, so I'm, I'm glad it's done. We're not doing another book. <laughs> and I have to thank Willa. But here's a, I can give you an idea of what's in the book. Um, if you haven't purchased it and you want to, you can get an idea of what's in it. A good friend of ours, a person who taught me in college at Lemoyne, Dan Berrigan, died in May. And if it wasn't for Dan, I'd have never gotten here to Baltimore. I would have never met Phil Berrigan. I would have never met Willa. We wouldn't have started Vivas, da-da-da-da. Well, Dan is the only teacher I had. Now, I had eight years of Jesuits, but he's the only person I ever heard who actually preached the gospel uh, in class and then, as I learned, out of class. And he said one time to us that we live in a world intoxicated with death, mesmerized by death, convinced of the necessary rule of death, skillfully conniving with death. We worship technology and technological death, and we accede to the omnipresence of death. But it didn't have to be that way. And our power, all our power, is only in nonviolence and in community. That's, that's the only way we're going to beat Trump. It's the only way there's going to be peace. And it's the only way we're going to be able to divide up the wealth, believing in both community and nonviolence. Um, in this particular uh, painting of Willis, this is a silkscreen. It says our problems stem from our acceptance of this filthy, rotten system. And that's what it is. It's a system that's filthy and rotten. And it has all of the isms in it. Like Willa was saying, the kids have put it together. You know, all of the issues are part of this system. 
And the only way it's going to be taken down is with community. So you have our problems stem. This was a 1976, the bicentennial, uh, that this was made. We made about 100 of them. And then we had to get them printed. We didn't silkscreen each one. But that's what it is. You can see the, uh, the, this, the nation has its back, uh, is on the back of everyone else. That's acceptance. And then the filthy, rotten system of the flag. Um, and that, I think it's kind of an important thing. It was a quote of Dorothy Day's, our problems stem from our acceptance of this filthy, rotten system. And one of the first persons to live with us at Beaver House uh, and be there was Tom Lewis, who is a great artist and one of the Catonsville Nine. And he told us, this is now back in 1967, um, that uh, it's become painfully clear through the war in Vietnam what we've been doing to the world for some time now. And nothing could be clearer to me that so many of the problems that, went, that we noticed in Vietnam, witnessed in Vietnam, this has been going on for a long time, a long time. I saw a statistic that I think the country since 1776 is 241 years old, approximately, right? Well, I guess exactly. And we have been at war for 223 of them with someone, war being the health of the state. And that's, that's, what's, that's what's been going on. So this, this uh, silk screen here, uh, uh, the one that says bloody feet, swollen stomachs, yellow, black, poor, probably illiterate and dirty, shot down, and for what? For property, private. And that's what the war in Vietnam was all about. It was really all about wealth and private property. So we made this thing, and when the Catonsville Nine was in jail out in Towson, I was able to go over and get uh, one of Phil's shirts with the collar and everything, like I looked like oh, I was a priest or something. And they let me in, and so I was able to give them a, a copy of the silkscreen. Uh, and we had called it draft files are for burning. So the house itself began primarily with resistance. And we view hospitality as resistance, non-cooperation really with the institutions. And so nobody gets paid. All the food that we get is donated, and it goes in and goes out. It's really pretty simple. Um, and so that's, that's a, an idea. When Willow said, I'm the numbers man, I'm the numbers man because in order to keep, in order to keep the thing uh, going uh, without any disorganization, when you have 200 people out in front wanting to come in and eat, you've got to kind of organize it. And the best way to organize it is through nonviolence. So you've got to create an area out in the back where people can sit and wait. And you have to have a great group of people, which we do have, serving the meal so it's not anything crazy, and you have to have pretty good food. Uh, we, we, we try to do that. So we've been doing that soup kitchen, and we figured since 68, uh, well, well over a million people have come in. And with the food, food bags, that's in tonnage. Uh, enormous amounts of food have gone out. The Catholic Worker is a house of resistance, and hospitality. Some houses uh, throughout the country and throughout the world do a lot more resistance than hospitality, and some do more hospitality than resistance. But they're all together. They're one thing. Um, hospitality is resistance itself. Um, we, we know for sure that we can't be Trump and we can't uh, save, solve any problems Foreign policies that we have are not going to solve them. The gross national product isn't going to solve them. Nuclear deterrence are not the answer. Mayors, priests, presidents, congresspeople, city planners and developers can't save us. The Vatican can't save us. The World Buddhist Association can't change us. Angels and archangels can't save us. Hitler, Obama, Trump, or Joan of Arc can't save us. The only thing that can save us is organizing nonviolently 
into communities of resistance. And that, that kind of is what we wanted the House to be. Whether we've succeeded, we don't know. But the idea is maybe it's not important whether we succeed the way capitalists think you should succeed. Um, we haven't made a dime on this thing, and maybe, maybe we're not supposed to, and we know that. But I just want to read, if I could, just a couple of things um, uh, from the book. Uh, I'll read the short ones. And there's nothing really long in this, uh, in this book. I mean, some people say, yeah, I've read it twice, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> this, this one comes from, I don't know if you've ever read the Book of Lamentations uh, or Psalm 25, but it goes like this. This is Lamentations of Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore, how lonely you sit. Once you were thronged with nearly a million people. Now... It's as if you were suddenly widowed. You've prostituted yourself to the developers, the privileged, the silver spoon people. You permit families to be dumped on the cold streets while you hurry by to your yachts and ball games. Come, God of liberation, 2,000 years on. We don't need much. Some bread, a place to rest, and plenty, plenty of roses. We, the poor, are forgotten, as good as dead in your heart, something to be discarded, people not to be tolerated. Come, O God of the oppressed, don't let Baltimore shame us and dishonor us. Don't let her discredit us and build bank accounts on our weary backs. That was kind of like uh, what we thought we were doing in the book was kind of summarize what we've seen in Baltimore. You know, this is not, we don't get TIF money. You know, when, <laughs> this one really hurts. When they're going to build this new city for the guy in Under Armour, Kevin Plank. Now, he is the 527th richest person on the freaking planet. He could give himself a loan and then build the city. But it's always, here's what they've got to offer us. There's going to be, you know that... Nobody's going to be around when they finally, the final bills come in on that damn project. It's going to take 40 years just to get even. And by that time, they won't even be making clothes. You know, they don't make anything in Baltimore. They don't make any clothing. You know, I always thought, my dumb self, that down there under armor, they were making shirts. They don't make anything. All they make here is money. And that's what it's all about. So... That, well, you probably have your own thing about TIFF and everything like that, but that's one thing. So that's one, that's one poem. Then this, now, I used to really like to go to ball games. And I was, this is really true, I was at the Polo Grounds in 1954 when Willie Mays made that great catch. Yes, I was. I was sitting in right field behind a pole. And I didn't see Willie make that catch, but I did see... <laughs> the ball be thrown in, and nobody advanced, and I was right near where Dusty Rhodes hit the home run. So I was only in the seventh grade. Boy, I wasn't sports great, and everything like that. And then, a couple of years later, the Giants left, and the Dodgers left. And then I realized that it's all about the money. It's all about the money, and don't get too close to any of these teams, because it's all about the money. So this one, this is a little poem... How about them O's, hon? No hon? A little Baltimore thing. Because we always have money for new stadiums, and there's always money for bread and circuses. So this is a uh, title of this poem is How About Them O's, hon? The governor rants and raves. The mayor, he just sits, clueless, but reading. Developer Willard Hackerman, he just laughs and counts the gold all the way to the right field wall. All the way to the right field wall. But hey, how about demos, hon? Public space, a memory. But have we got private? Festival marking places, holiday police shopping, mall thralls, consumerism a go-go, big sky boxes, higher, 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 like the rents and the wounds. But hey, how about demos, hon? Meanwhile, the kids on the street, 
not coming home at night, time on the hand, no work for the hands. Schoolboys carry guns, not books. Metal detectors, no books to read. Libraries are gone, gone. But hey, how about them O's, hon? The walls are up, right, center, left, great stadium, divided city. Us, them, have plenty, want more, versus have nothing. No trickling down, work, scarce. Part-time, part-pay, low-pay, no-pay. But hey, how about them O's, hon? The joke in Charm City, the difference between preschool and school kids is simple. The preschoolers lack the coordination to pull the trigger. But hey, how about them O's, hon? Oh, one more thing. We'll see to it. We'll guarantee it. The poor will always, always be here. Wait, baby, that ball is going, going. Baby, that ball is gone. But hey, how about them O's, hon? So that was just a little something for the developing downtown there. The other thing, you know, we've had all these mayors, we've had all these police commissioners, we've had the police. Now, Willa made a mistake and she said that there's been no arrest. We don't let the police in the house. We tell them that we don't allow guns in the house, so you really can't come in the house. Who do you want to see? And then if we think that person's there, we say somebody wants to see you, so you should be going out the back. Uh, so, but it's true. Anybody that's been there, we don't let the police in. So we have this zero tolerance. This is, this is the big thing. You know, when you live in a real technological society, you employ all the tools you can, and you think that zero tolerance will do it. So this is a little poem, and it was written uh, in 1916, and I, um, being a person who uh, did really do want the British out of uh, Ireland completely, uh, in 1916, uh, this is a poem the, that I, uh, the inspiration of it is from Patrick Pierce, one of the leaders of the um, 1916 Easter Rising, who was executed by the Brits. And so it goes like this. But this, the name of this is now is Zero Tolerance. Life springs from death and from the graves of the unemployed and the spit upon women and men spring revolutionary people. The defenders of the aristocracy have worked in the secret and in the open. They think they can control people with high-tech surveillance cameras and zero-tolerance laws. They think they can lock up half the poor and intimidate the other half. They think they know everything and have foreseen everything. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us half-starved, woefully undereducated children. They have left us evicted neighbors and sisters and brothers who sleep in open weather, some even frozen to death. And while Baltimore ignores these people, her neighborhoods will never, never be at peace. And I think we saw a lot of that with regard to uh, Freddie Gray. Um, so that was zero tolerance. And then ending on a, a real crucial note is joy. And we did um, a Christmas card that, well, I say we, well, did a Christmas card. You can see how a picture or a painting is really worth a lot of this bullshit that I'm throwing around. <laughs> so right over here, if we'll hold it up, it says, um, it's got to be the joy. Um, and that was what we sent out. So, Joy being the hallmark. You show anybody, somebody who's a resistor or somebody who spent a lot of time in jail or somebody who's out there, if they have joy, that's a key thing. If you give up the joy, you're out of the game. You really are out of the game. Um, so this, this is a, a poem mainly uh, about the Catholic worker movement. Um, and I'll, I'll read it to you, and if you have any questions, you can say you know, what defines a Catholic worker is what, what it is. Now, I think you know that I'm not talking about the institutional church here um, when I say Catholic, all right? You all understand that. It's universal, Catholic meaning universal. Everybody's in. Okay, so it goes like this. Some say working the soup kitchen best defines the Catholic worker. Some say opening your home to the lonely and destitute best defines the Catholic worker. Some say resisting the war makers, doing the time, 
refusing to go along with the greed and the violence best defines the Catholic worker. Some say it's all of these, knowing full well that the best we can do is plant a few seeds, knowing full well the harvest is a long time coming. But deep down, really, in our heart of hearts, we know it's got to be the joy. You lose joy, you lose it all. No joy, no hope. No joy, no endurance. No joy, no understanding of the suffering. No joy, no meaning to life. No joy, and it's just another year at Guantanamo. No joy, and we're all just doing time on the planet. Oh, yeah, it's got to be the joy. Um, so that's... that's and any, anything on the, on the table here, any of the artwork, just take it with you. If you want to buy a book, we, we realize that nobody's going to pay $39.99 for a book, because I wouldn't pay $39.99. So we said, well, we didn't, they didn't check with us, obviously, um, about the book. So we said, well, how much does the book cost? So we bought books from Loyola, and then we sold them, and... All we're doing is breaking even. We made a mistake in the beginning where we didn't realize that if you mailed it to somebody, the envelope and the mailing cost $5. So we're trying to make up a little. That's what, it's 25 not 20 now. But again, when I was out in Las Vegas, I said, but if you can't pay it, you know, tell it, just give us what you can. Somebody actually came up to me. The guy was in the street, and he gave me two cents. And so I gave him the book, you know. I mean, you can be humbled in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, so he has the book, and I'll bet he's reading it. Um, or he's, he's looking at the artwork. See, and if, if you're looking at the artwork, I think you got it. That's the key. If you really do, I'm quite serious. They did a great job printing it, by the way. They did a great job printing it. And I'll tell you another short story. I went, I went up to, uh, you know, when you try to peddle your own book and you don't know crap about how capitalism works. So I took the book out to the Ivy Bookshop, and I said, listen, how about this? If I give you five books, um, and you give me $100, then you can sell the book. And so, and they said, yeah, okay, that'll be the five books. So two months go by, and I, you know, I didn't get any $100. So I say, I was calling up about the book. I said, oh yeah, it's doing great. We ordered 30 more copies. And I said, yeah, well, remember I gave you five? And then I said, if you want more to call me. So I think they got them through Apprentice. So people are paying 40 bucks. So they must really like the artwork. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. And so, I mean, we could go on and on here. Um, but if people want to ask questions, or, that, that'd be great. And I don't know, how, how long does this usually go, Linda? Oh, this is so you run out of steam. Oh, I've run out. <laughs> Oh, okay. Ooh. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, Dave. Suppose I arrange a meeting uh, with my friend Mary Pat Clark and you guys and Kathy Q. Would you go? What would you tell her? Same thing. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buy a book for her if she doesn't have one. And okay. the city council should have it too. But okay. No, I, I would. look at the city the same way. I no, I don't think so. Well, you see, I mean... You, you really do have to see zip code 21223. If you start at our house and go north to North Avenue, you will see that our zip code has lost 40,000 people since we've been in Baltimore. You will see, I mean, we've had, we had students come in from Xavier um, uh, in January. They were here, you know, as a winter break or something. And people can't believe it. They really think that it looks like a war has gone on. I mean, a band dominiums galore all the way up. And the amount of violence, I mean, you know, they keep, you know, they keep saying uh, this and that about that. But do you realize that since we've been in Baltimore, 12,000 people have been murdered? 12,000 people. I, I measured that against Northern Ireland where there was a war going on. And there were only 3,000 people killed during the 30 years, 68 to 98, in the north of Ireland. 
and we've had 12,000 people murdered in Baltimore City. Um, we've had four right on our own block. And I was out one time, it, it's in the book, you know, walking, Union Square is a block away, and it's a good place to walk around, you know, for exercise. So it was August, and you know how hot it is and all that. So if you do it like at 5.30, 5 o'clock, it's a little cooler. And two kids came up behind me on a bike, and the guy put a gun at my head, and I said, you know, I said, I had a shirt on that said, Grandpa Rocks, and a, a pair of shorts, and all I had in my pocket was key, my keys to get in the house. So I showed the kid the keys, and I said, I don't have anything. And I was shitting in my pants, uh, because, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought for sure this was it. This is the way 30, 40 years were going to end on Mount Street. And uh, they said, okay, well, why don't you just go home? And, you know, the kid's 15 and 16. I'm almost 70, and he's telling me to go home. <laughs> so I saw this couple getting into a car uh, right around the square, and I said, listen, could you give me a ride home? And I said, I'm only, only a block away. Um, and I, they were kind of like, you got this a little bit amazed. I said, and, and be careful out there. So uh, anything can happen down, uh, down on, uh, in this area. Uh, the death of Oscar Torres was, was really, really sad. Um, he was 15. All three of our granddaughters were staying with us. And um, he was shot right, oh, I'd say, maybe 10 yards from our front door. Um, and it was incredible. Uh, we, we had not seen a lot of uh, Hispanic people come into the soup kitchen. Uh, over in West Baltimore, it's not as great a uh, place. Most of the Hispanic folks we know are over in East Baltimore, uh, around St. Patrick's Church, that area, Broadway. Uh, and anyway, um, his, he, they wanted to bury Oscar where he was born in, in Mexico. So we helped them raise uh, the money to do that. And every night, uh, the entire week before the funeral, there would be, uh, you know, prayer vigils. And you can't, you really can't comprehend the sight to see Oscar's father pouring water on the concrete, trying to rub out the blood with his bare hands. I mean, nothing, you're not prepared to, to deal with that. Um, and then when they had the funeral, at St. Patrick's, uh, um, a week after his death, uh, his mother at the casket, it was like a woman uh, in childbirth. It was really, um, it was really something else uh, to see that. And that's, that's a lot of the gloomy stuff, but there's, there's a lot of joy in what we've seen uh, at the house uh, over uh, almost 50 years. Um, so, so I hope the book... Uh, does something um, like that. Yeah. But if it doesn't, the paintings will. <laughs> so, I wanted to ask, um, I see Max back here. Could you tell us what um, people could do as far as resistance in the city, what kind of unity we can uh, join? You all just came from, from, a, from a vigil. Yes. yes. Oh, is there another Max? Who else is here named Max? <laughs> Max Obacheski. Uh, well, uh, if I could ask you a question, make sure. a comment. Do you want to come up here? Sure. Just open mic. Open mic. I'm going to get my crap out of the way. Uh, I, this was uh, totally unexpected. I came here to... Uh, rest, I've already bought a book, so I wasn't going to buy a book. <laughs> I think I got that $40 version, but I'll have to oh, check no. with my bookkeeper. No, no, I bought it at the house. I bought it. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, I'm going to start with this. Uh, uh, Janice and, and myself and probably other people in the room did go down on uh, Saturday for the march. I'm going to start, I'm going to start with that. Uh, the only thing that I know of that was comparable in my travels 
was June 12, 1982 in New York City. Uh, some of you wouldn't know this, but uh, it was the great anti-nuclear march. And uh, two busloads uh, from Erie, Pennsylvania, where I was living at the time, uh, drove into New York. We parked right in the Bronx by Yankee Stadium. That's where our buses were parked. We took the subway downtown, uh, got off at Times Square. This was uh, before I was educated, but we saw these puppets. I didn't know that was bread and circus in 1982, but eventually I found that was bread and circus. And we marched over to... Uh, to uh, uh, where the the park? Uh, no, no, the big park. Central, park, Central Park. There you go. Yeah, we marched over to Central Park. We could not get in. It was that huge of a, a march, and I believe it might have been the, the biggest march in U.S. history of that kind. I think it was a million people there. But this one on Saturday was beyond comprehension. Uh, I think everybody probably knows this, but just in case you don't know this. You know, a number of people came over. Janice and I were holding a, a, a sign about exporting peace. And uh, people were coming over asking us, uh, where's the march going to start and where's it going to go? And I didn't know. And I you know, I Googled it and it said to be announced. And I later found out that there was no march because people were from the Capitol all the way to the White House. You couldn't march. We saw lots of people marching you know, when we got there at 830 or so. And they were marching everywhere. Uh, and I'll get to Friday next, but uh, the one thing I want to say, this, this has to be put out there. I'm, I'm going to be speaking out at uh, Dundalk at the community college on Thursday. There's a little forum, and I'll be bringing this up. Uh, Willa, you said this, that they've covered all the issues. I'm going to argue a little bit about you about that because uh, the Women's March would not touch militarism. And almost everything uh, Brendan said today was about militarism. This city right here, when you, I'm astonished. I, I, I try to convince WYPR to cover these issues. Thankfully, they have uh, both of our esteemed uh, authors here on, on, but they won't touch this issue. 54% of the federal discretionary budget goes to warmongering. 54%. Anybody, I assume all of you live in Baltimore, you know all the problems we have. The, the pipes are breaking every week. The schools, we've got a $129 million deficit. Well, we can't afford that. We can't raise taxes. But wait a minute. Why are you giving 54% of the money to the military? If you don't deal with that issue, in my opinion, biased opinion, nothing is going to help. There's a don't they get a lot back on arms sales? Uh, yeah. Yes, they get a lot back. I just sent out uh, Howdy... Howdy, radical attorney here, uh, who's on my e-list, uh, might have seen the the, uh, the email that I sent out today. I was waiting for it. Sure enough, Trump sent out the first drone strike in Yemen, and and allegedly killed terrorists. But we know most of the people that are being killed in these drone strikes are are innocents. Happen to be there. Uh, I won't tell you the whole story, but Janice is a a Roman Catholic woman priest. And on Saturday, after we marched over uh, to, uh, to uh, Union Station to chill a little bit, you can't make this stuff up, but we're sitting at Oban Pond. I had my tea. Janice is sitting there. And who sits next, right across from me, but a Catholic priest? He's got his collar. And uh, he's from Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island, Italian. He was so proud because he came down to support Trump uh, for the inauguration. And we told him that we were staying at, uh, with some nuns on uh, Newton Street near Catholic University. One of the nuns is Sister Megan Rice. A number of you might know her. Uh, she was all over the news because she was part of the uh, Transform Now plowshares. And so the first question this priest asked was, uh, do they wear habits? And uh, none of the nuns that I... Uh, associate myself with. Not, I'm not disparaging the ones that wear the wings like when I was in grade school, but uh, no, they don't wear habits. And I said, I thought you couldn't preach from, from the pulpit politics. And uh, he says, well, we, we don't do that, but we just tell which candidates are supporting abortion and which are not supporting abortion. That's why he was, that was his issue. And I will, I will bet you any money that Trump supports abortion. This 
nonsense he's giving out that he's you know, anti-abortion. You know, well, you've heard most of his lies. Uh, so uh, it was thrilling to be there. I saw so many people that I didn't know. The only person we met that I knew was Betsy Robbins, uh, Betsy Cunningham from Women in Black, the only one. So it's just another indication of how uh, large they are. On Friday, I, one of the groups I work with is the National Campaign for Nonviolent Resistance. Anybody who wants to get involved, uh, Dave Everhart was there. He says, how can I be a member of National Campaign for Nonviolent Resistance? Look, just show up. Come and join us. And so uh, what we had decided to do is we did this at Obama's uh, inauguration, the last one. They were equal opportunity protesters. So <laughs> if you don't know this, Obama has killed more people than King George II Bush uh, with drone strikes. And Obama is a constitutional law professor. And anybody who knows anything about these drone strikes, there's no due process at all. And Obama was responsible for at least six US citizens to be killed by drone strikes. No due process at all. So we did, we did a die-in that year we could get up to where the Russell office building is. We did a die-in in the streets there. And we timed it so just as the people were leaving Obama's inauguration, second inauguration, people saw us. Uh, Senator Cruz saw us. Uh, Al Franken saw us. Thousands of people were taking photographs. Very dramatic to simulate a drone strike. And so we decided we're going to do the same thing this time. And uh, I assume most of you know you got Union Station and you have Columbus Circle. There's probably 1,000 people demonstrating in, in uh, uh, Columbus Circle on uh, Friday, uh, we marched over to an area, you cross Massachusetts Avenue, then you have First Street. And if you could go on First Street, you could go up to the Supreme Court, you could go to the Capitol. Uh, but they had military vehicles blocking the road. So uh, we decided to do it there, a visual. And again, we did another uh, another simulated drone strike. People died in the streets. Uh, as soon as I hit the pavement, there's somebody there. Remember, the National Guard was there, Secret Service was there, and U.S. Capitol Police were all there at this uh, juncture. There were a couple of gates not far from where we were, and he, uh, somebody said, you can stay there all night if you want to. So uh, we, we, just did, we just did about 30 minutes, did a closing ceremony with music, and then we went to try to support the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, because they were there, 14th and East Street. We moved over there. Uh, so here in Baltimore, I was stunned to find out you had 5,000 people that came out to 33rd in, in Charles Street. That's where Sydney and uh, Sharon and others, we meet there every Tuesday, usually at 5.30 or 6.30, to protest Johns Hopkins drone, drone research. Anybody that's interested in any type of uh, civil resistance is what we call. I know there's some students here, if I asked them, they would define civil disobedience. <laughs> civil disobedience being you're, you're there to break, it, to break a law that's unjust. But well, we do civil resistance. We go someplace and we challenge a corporation or the government because they're breaking the laws. That's what's going on. Brandon was giving us some of these examples of how they're the lawbreakers. Therefore, civil resistance, we're saying we've got to uphold the law. Uh, we can do nonviolence training if anybody's uh, interested in any of this. We'd be happy to show them. Any way that I can be of help, Brendan and Willa know me, and I would... Got a great email list, too. Yeah, if you want to uh, get on an email Does list. Does all, all the uh, coordination of all the different events here in the city. Thank you. <laughs> Are there any questions now? Um, does anybody want to ask anything? Howdy. I just wondered... Oh, that's a good to do, like Dave said something about meeting with the mayor. We, we 
been there and done that. Like, um, we had treatment on demand. When we started all this, the first years, mostly alcoholism, quite a bit of heroin. But when, when we would have people stay with us or people um, aid at the soup kitchen or something, and they needed to dry out, we could get them admitted that day. It was treatment on demand. We know how to do that. I mean, this nonsense of what they put people through, the hoops to get a place to stay. Um, the hospitals were all closed, deinstitutionalized um, in the 70s and turned out all the uh, homeless women and, children, w women and men. And um, that's who stayed at our house so often in the 80s. Um, we know that uh, in the 70s and 80s we had public health nurses for every census tract. And the census tract is a very small area. Those nurses knew every person in that area. They knew who was gonna have a baby. They supported everything they needed for prenatal care. Because I was one of those women, they'd come to your house and see after the baby was born to see if you needed anything, and they'd get it for you. It wasn't like they were checking on you, but if you didn't have a crib, they'd find one for you. It was very supportive. Um, for uh, all the different diseases, tuberculosis, like at the soup kitchen, they would come and test people at the soup kitchen and then come back in three days for the time test and, and do the reading. And if you were positive, they just took you. Well, they'd ask you, but of course, they would take you in the car. They would just go right down to Western District for, for chest X-ray and treatment. Um, we, it's not rocket science. We know how to solve these problems like the drug war, but we're not doing it. I worked as a nurse for, for most of the years that we've been at VBOS. We always took turns working so that we'd have our own income to support our family and take our trips to visit our family. Good mother did most of the work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Unless I couldn't get a job. Right. I, I supported Brenda through getting his master's degree. I don't have a master's degree. He's through his master's degree and he hasn't worked a day since. <laughs> <laughs> Come over the microphone. My, my, my experience at um, Mercy High School, uh, <laughs> it, was, um, it was an interesting thing. I was, I was doing a course with a, uh, an English teacher, and the title of the course, I, I, I think I copyright this one, the title of the course was Freedom and Suffering. What's the relationship between freedom and suffering? And we had it really all worked out. I said this, in the readings that we're going to do, and we were reading everything from Hamlet uh, to the loneliness of the long-distance runner, the autobiography of Malcolm X. This is a class that met every day. Started off with 30 kids, and there were juniors and seniors. So in one of the first classes, since we were dealing with symbols throughout this course, I brought in some symbols. And one was the American flag. I'm talking about now like one of those tiny American flags, right? A dollar bill, a picture of Jesus, an ad for Playboy magazine, and an ad for IT&T. And we passed those around and we said, are these symbols of freedom or symbols of suffering? And there was a debate, you know, like you have the money, you can buy things to get something, and then say, yeah, but it's freed and... And, you know, the Playboy magazine, well, you can, you know, it's okay, people like to do that, or, you know, all this. So we said, well, you know, it seems like there's very much disagreement on whether these symbols are freedom or symbols of suffering. So I said, in the Old Testament, they used to use fire as a means of purification. So I took all these items, very innocently. Uh, we had a trash can, small trash can. I had a bucket of water. And we burned them. I thought it went fine. <laughs> Poured water on the thing. Then we passed around. This is, this is how solid this course was. Passed around bread and um, grape juice as a symbol of unity. And then I said, now here's the trick. We have a rock and we have an egg. And the rock is a symbol of death and decay. And we have to destroy that rock. But we're not going to destroy it with a bigger rock. We're going to destroy it with the egg. We're going to break the egg. I mean, we're going to break the rock with the egg without doing damage to the egg. 
Now that's a hard symbol to come upon. But I said, that's what nonviolence is. You do have all of this terrible thing. So um, I thought it went fine. And the kids went home, and, and then some said, you know what? They burned a flag in the class today. They burned a flag. So, so the FBI and the bomb and arson squad came up. Now, some students who had caught on refused to talk to them. And, but the majority of the students, half the class, their parents wouldn't let them continue uh, with the class, which was a sad thing. Uh, but the other 15 stayed with it. And um, uh, that, that, what, I, what I thought I would do if I was doing the same thing now would maybe have to have poured uh, you know, red paint or something like that on the flag or something um, uh, instead of um, burning it. Uh, and, or try to wash the blood out of the thing with, you know, you know ivory soap or something like that. Um, we did once at Mount We did that one time at, at a demonstration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was sad to lose the um, thing. But you can be very creative. Well, to make a long story short, the real reason why Willow worked 25 years as a nurse is it was hard to get, you know. <laughs> I went out after Mercy. I know I kind of hid. I, I got a job at Johns Hopkins in the child life department as a teacher. And that, that, was, that was a really interesting job. You had all the kids who came into the hospital from, you know, really from birth until uh, teen or 20 years old. And I would be the teacher. But it was a great way because then I started bringing in films and stuff like that to the kids. And, um, you know, you, you'd get them. Some, some had just tonsillectomies and some had terminal cancer. So it was a real wide thing uh, for people. It was a very interesting job. But I really wanted to get back in the classroom. So I... I got a job they didn't know. I kind of hid out for a little bit. And I got a job out at Maryvale. But I only made it till Columbus Day. Because <laughs> they found out about Mercy. And, they, and so they actually, at a meeting, uh, they asked me if I was a communist. And I says, no, because I thought they had fallen behind. <laughs> <laughs> And then I said, now I did sign a contract, and, I, and you knew who I was, and I told you what I was going to teach. And I had Stanley Vishnewski, if, if you know anything about the Catholic worker, he was one of the first people. He was my first speaker. He had brought down a slideshow and everything like that. Um, but we never got out of October the 12th. So I said, you know, you do owe me the contract, though. Well, they wouldn't mail it to me. I had to go up and get the check until I got a job at St. Ambrose Housing Aid. So I told uh, Vinny at that time, I said, Vinny, listen, you don't have to pay me right away. <laughs> so so I, I, I kept getting my checks, and then I told him in April I was uh, working at St. Ambrose. So, um, you know, you, what happens to you when you, you know, burn flags? You know, well, it, nobody cared about burning the picture of Jesus. Nobody cared about it. I mean, it was, and I didn't know it was a crime to burn money. I, it's, it's trying to earn money. I said, well, he's, I, I didn't know that. Um, as if that would have been. Uh, Nobody cared about that either. It was just a flag. It really was just a flag. Now, the sad part about that, this class, I had really organized this thing. We had a trip to New York. We stayed. I had worked it out with Paul Moore, who was an Episcopal bishop at, um, uh, at St. John the Divine in Harlem. And we stayed there. Then I would take half the class down to, uh, I know, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue, Fifth Avenue, all that, and the other half down to the worker. And then we actually had lunch with uh, Dorothy Day. Uh, and the kids are, of course, supposed to have read The Long Loneliness, uh, and of course they didn't. And, and they didn't know who the hell they were. They were, they were and to make that old joke, yeah, they did think it could have been Doris Day. Uh, so. <laughs> So, you know, you live and learn. Um, but uh, So that's in the book, too. So now you probably don't even have to buy the book. <laughs> see, for the artwork. Excuse me. You can well, come to the book. house and see the artwork. <laughs> we got to wrap this up. Okay. All right, wrap it up, Will. Do, do, is that okay? Is everybody? Okay. Oh, yes, we do, yes. Um, is it cash? Oh, no, check. check no, no credit cards, obviously. <laughs> and um, 
and you you know where we are, so you can get if you don't have money tonight, you can get a book later. And how do you want more? How do you see the future? Well, I might need to get a, a knee replacement, but we've always said we would keep doing it as long as we can still lift the steaming pots. In other words, like, you know when I'm carrying over you know, a five-gallon thing of spaghetti and you got to drain the water, you don't want your knees to buckle. Uh, so right now we're still able to do the steaming pots. I mean, we'll, we'll pretty much die there, I'm sure. Um, uh, well, we have this great crew uh, that work with us. So it, it's really not us. I mean, uh, I see maybe 10 people here, more, who, who have worked with us over the years. That's how it keeps going. It's community. It's really, it's, it's, there's no question about it. It's the common good. It's the, I mean, Trump and them, they're never going to understand that. You, can, you don't make money in the common good, but everybody gets enough. I mean, it's real simple. It's not, it really is not. Really rocket science or anything like that. The guy's plan came up to the Green Sand Valley and took a lot of that away too. And I heard they're gonna let they want all the pipelines to go. Trump <laughs> today. This guy it's he's really he's really madness. All right. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.